Many RNs fresh out of nursing school want to jump into the field immediately. It's not always that easy, though. I was a home visitation nurse for the VNA my first time out, which involved going to the patient's home on behalf of the hospital. An interesting job, to say the least. I was assigned a patient who had just been discharged after surgery and who required two daily checkups over the course of ten days. The patient, Louise, was an elderly widow who lived by herself in the country, about two hours from the nearest highway. The family offered me her guest room to cut down on drive time. I accepted without a second thought. Louise's family owned a lot of property in the area and always seemed to be working. An incredibly tough woman, she was no exception to this. I arrived to find her making breakfast. This was less than two weeks after her surgery. She was a ball of energy. The hospital staff and I loved her. Her house was a beautifully restored plantation home from the 1800s. Aside from a few modern additions, it looked virtually untouched by time, almost like a movie set. The guest room was practically larger than my apartment, though the cozy atmosphere relieved the awkwardness I normally feel when sleeping in a strange bed. My first night, I awoke to the sound that I can only describe as recorded scratching, played at twice the speed. Bizarre, I know. I've heard nothing like it since. It would echo from the ceiling at random, followed by hollow knocks all around the room. Honestly, it didn't bother me all that much. I figured it was a rat problem and laid out some traps the next day. The following night, I slept like a baby, only to find the traps hadn't been disturbed. The bait was intact, there was no sign of rat droppings, the house seemed to be clear. Yet, the next night, the strange noises persisted. I'm a fan of scientific analysis, a skeptic, really. I break down problems logically and find solutions that best fit the facts. This one, however, stumped me. The house was empty, but for Louise and I. No animals, no neighbors, no faulty water pipes, I know, because I checked. Louise hadn't heard the noises herself. I asked about the recent renovation, but nothing in the way of an explanation came up. A few days passed. On a night I recall as especially quiet, I heard what I took to be Louise talking to herself in her sleep. It was like listening to a one-sided conversation. I asked her about it the next morning, but she remembered nothing. She'd slept fine, she said. Granted, the stress of recovery can play all kinds of tricks on a patient's mind, so Louise's bout of sleep-talking didn't strike me as unusual. The next night, however, I heard a voice responding to her. A man's voice, faint but undeniable. As I listened, I froze, fixated on the ceiling, unable to comprehend how this was possible. I knew we were alone in that house. Without mentioning anything, I looked through her medical records for any history of psychosis and came up short. I wanted to leave, but had a job to do. I had to remain calm and professional, at least for a few more days. I don't remember the exact details of this next incident, as I don't like to revisit it. But one night, I awoke to the sound of footsteps, clumsy and erratic, like a child's. I immediately assumed Louise had a problem and was coming for me for help. I grabbed my equipment bag and ran toward her room, the adrenaline rush making my feet light as air. My heartbeat pounded in my ears. I found Louise near the staircase. The poor woman was delusional, mumbling, her eyes wide and glazed over. When I asked if she was okay, she couldn't respond. The words just refused to come out. At last, struggling, she erupted with, They don't want you! It caught me off guard, but I gently led Louise back to bed before I gave the words much thought. 
Afterwards, I paced the guest room, shaken. I kept telling myself to leave, but it was 4 a.m. If I left right then, I'd just have to turn back around for the morning checkup, so I opted for some sleep aids, a lot of them, and managed to grab a few Z's. A few hours later, I woke up, went to the bathroom, and looked in the mirror. Trembling, I looked at my reflection and saw long red scratches all over myself. I was covered, and most disturbingly, the deepest, reddest one was right underneath my chin from ear to ear. I packed up my things, said a hurried goodbye to Louise, and never came back. I looked into the place's history a few months later out of morbid curiosity, and found it was registered as a historic landmark. The house had been a makeshift hospital during the Civil War. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. And I'm Michael Tatum, now free of adjectives. Free of adjective, Michael Tatum. <laughs> uh, who said that story? Uh, that was from Alex. Alex, thank you, mm -hmm. Alex. What a great story. Yeah. Ooh. Creepy, creepy, yes. creepy. Nurses, I'm sure nurses mm -hmm. see and experience a lot of shit. Oh, yeah. I've heard. From the other side. From plenty. Mm -hmm. um, Seems to almost be like an occupational hazard. Yeah. Spiritual mm -hmm. bullshit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whew. Yeah, scary. It's, it's crazy, too. I would, it would be so weird, too, to have to, like, be alone in a house with your patient. I mean... Yeah, and their house, big house alone in the middle of nowhere. Their house yeah. with the patient. Mm -hmm. That's just like, what do you but do it happens during a the lot. day? I mean, yeah. well, I think that's kind of you know, with a big house like that, I'd go exploring. Right. You know, but oof, it's crazy just yeah. being that remote. Ooh. That's creepy. Honestly. I don't like big houses in the middle of nowhere if they're not mine. Right. I've never had, and I'm not sure that I would like that because I've never had a big house in the middle of nowhere. Right. <laughs> I don't, I'm not a big fan of houses in the middle of nowhere most of the time. You know what? I'm not a fan of the middle of nowhere. There's That's just right. nothing about this Because every bad, situation. like, not every bad story, but if you hear I was in the middle of nowhere, it's not going to, something shitty is going to happen. It's not, I was in the middle of nowhere and, and everything was wonderful everything and peaceful <laughs> and just the best time. That's not how that shit goes down. I guess you're it just seems to me like there's so much that can go down in the middle of nowhere that no one will ever discover or know happened. Yeah, because yeah, it's, it's the middle of nowhere. fucking terrifying. Oh, to think gosh. About. Yeah. Of course, in the cities, it's the same because it's it might as well be the middle of nowhere. That's true. Cities, you're surrounded you're gonna... by people and everyone's just so anonymous. They just don't care. And some of them could be ghosts and you just don't know. Mm -hmm. Hey, what's and, our title? Oh, wait, this is Goal Intentions. This... <laughs> there we go. We Darn got it. to it. <laughs> And what's our title? Our title is uh, A Tangled Web. Ooh. Yeah, which is a quote from Sir Walter Scott. Uh, not Shakespeare. Everyone thinks it's Shakespeare. It's Walter not. It's, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. It's not from Charlotte's Web um, either. No, it could be. I mean. Um, it's originally from Sir Walter Scott's poem, uh, um, Merriman. Merriman. Yeah. I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't know. Scottish, so it might be like. It sounds like a, like, a, like an accounting firm. <laughs> well, hopefully they don't practice to deceive, but we know some of them do. Yeah. Okay, so just real quick. Mm -hmm. I need to let everyone know that we are having Moscow Mules today with fucking, fucking shit. blood orange ginger beer. It's like drinking an alcoholic fruit salad. It's like tart. Mm -hmm. It's so good. It's so good. It tastes like a whole other drink. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's so good. Highly like, recommend it. Mm-hmm. Give it a whirl. You're going to love it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I came over and I started making these and she's like, I have a surprise in the fridge. And I'm like, what are these? <gasps> Blood orange yeah. ginger beer? Ginger beer? Ginger beer. It ginger works beer. too. It's doing its job. Uh, yeah. I saw them at Sprouts. Oh. Uh. And I was like, I need that. Sprouts is, uh, for those who don't know, it's like a health food store, but like not health food, like healthier It's more like food. organic fresh foods and it's stuff. It's like if... Uh, it's like an alternate universe. If Whole Foods store. was affordable, <laughs> yeah. So like an alternate universe. He's totally Whole alternate. Foods. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so we chose Tangled Web, right? Because both of our stories have some controversies around it. From now, I don't yeah. know yours at all. No, I haven't even told you what it is. No, but you just told me that. I know some you're going to be surprised, and you're going to love it. Okay, I'm. Go for it. Okay, go for it. Okay, so I am doing. Drum roll. The Granberry Opera House. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So. Okay. The following is a story from backpack ver- Backpacker Verse told by someone <laughs> who didn't really buy into the ghost stories at the Granberry Opera House until this experience changed his mind. <laughs> Everything changed for me last week. I wasn't at the Opera House seeing a show. I actually went to turn in a resume for a potential job. Oh. It was a quiet night. They were prepping for an upcoming show backstage, so there weren't a lot of people hanging around the lobby. I turned in my application when I gave in to the desire to explore the house on my own. I mean, I you gotta. You yeah, have fucking... to. How many times have we done that when we're somewhere? We're oh like, my God. we're not supposed to go in that room, but you know it's haunted. Let's go check right. it out. Right. No Employees only? Fuck, I'm an employee right now. <laughs> Let me open this hey, door for you. Hey, they say dress for the job you want. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, it was just so quiet and enticing, I couldn't resist. He gets it. Right. So I made my way up the stairs and snuck into the back of the theater. It was soothing, listening to the racket happening backstage. I was just sitting there, taking in the atmosphere, when I heard the sound of footsteps approaching. I crouched down low, afraid that I had been spotted by a security guard. The steps got louder and louder until I was sure that someone was standing right over me. I swallowed quietly and remained as still as possible. It felt like 10 minutes passed before I dared to look up from the sticky floor, but nobody was there. I love the idea that they're like, hit hit the deck. Somebody's coming. Cheese it. It's the cops. (laughs) (laughs) They're just stuck on the sticky floor. That's the scariest part. Okay, so I looked all around the balcony, but nobody was there. And it's not like I'd heard the person, whoever it was, walk away from me either. It was freaky, but I was mostly just relieved that I hadn't been caught. It's a good way to not get a job. I made my way back down to the lower level. As I descended down the last step, I remember feeling as though I had walked through a pool of ice water. I looked above me and saw an AC vent, but it definitely did not seem like it was on at the time. At this point, things were just getting a touch too weird for me. I figured it'd be safest just to not press my luck, especially because I wanted a job. I tiptoed across the empty lobby floor until I made it to the front doors. Hey, I heard behind me. I probably leapt a foot in the air and turned to face what I assumed was a a security guard. But that isn't who was there. Standing on the last step of the darkened stairwell, I saw an emaciated figure standing there watching me. No apparition, just a full-on withered figure made of flesh and bone. What? I quickly rubbed my eyes, and the figure was gone in a matter of seconds. What? I stared at the darkened stairwell for a moment, then looked up at the bright lights that flooded the lobby. I thought maybe, just maybe, it had been a trick of the lights and that my eyes were just adjusting. 
Yeah. Happens really, all the time. Yeah, the light the time. gets in my eyes and I think I see a person. And they say things to me. I really don't know what was actually there, but I am definitely now convinced that the Granbury Opera House is haunted. And I bet he neglected to turn in an application. No, he turned it in and then went exploring. I bet he didn't answer the call. If they <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm like, not you know sure. Maybe I don't want to work here. I should have looked that up. There's so much to I can't even get into. I know nothing about So... I saw this during an episode of Ghost Lab. Um, oh, I remember Ghost Lab. And I liked the first part of Ghost Lab because they got into the history. They did yeah, a really good history yeah. thing. But then they started doing the ghost hunt and it's like, oh, I don't want ghost hunt any of this so shit. boring. Yeah, so. They always are, though. Like, ghost hunting. Yeah. The ghost hunt, the ghost hunting part, I'm just, it doesn't do anything for Unless me. I want the history. There. I want the story. Unless you're doing the hunting, it's like watching someone play golf. we've seen it all like, a thousand times. You yeah. know, we've seen it it's all. Like, anyway. Oh, gonna, yeah. So, Granberry, I mean, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe it's more exciting for other people. But I just want to see more stuff and the history and everything. So, Granberry, because people want to see us do ghost hunts, so then I don't want to be like, why would you watch that? It's not exciting. I mean, maybe if we do it, it will be. (laughs) Well, we're funny. Right. That's true. Uh, Also, we get scared of everything. (laughs) And stupid stuff, too. We get scared of, like, I'll be scared of something that doesn't do anything for you. Right. And then, you know, and you'll be faced by something. I'm like, come on, let's just. (laughs) Yeah. And then we'll get scared and then we'll go try to figure out what it is. Yes. It wouldn't be the first time we've done that. Okay. I feel like our friendship is based around. It is. Just various we points. We're like, we connected. I mean, yeah. we, we really connected over that one over, night in I the know. studio. We're like, I what's know. that noise? It's a ghost. And we like started asking questions. Like our first, our first go-to is to all like totally unscientific to be like, is there anything here? Like not yeah. to look, but yeah, Michael, we got a little better. We got a little yeah. more scientific. We were in studio. There. Michael was recording and I was directing him. And it was at night. It was so, like, no one else was up there. It was yeah. really creepy and deserted. We took a break, and when we came back, the engineer was like, listen to this. And you could hear, like... It was a weird kind of... Like a thumping. Thump, but it wasn't... It was more of a thump. It wasn't consistent. It was like... Right. It, had it slowed it, down, yeah. and we immediately went into ghost hunting. <laughs> Act, like, immediately, both of us. <laughs> we were ready. Turns out, Michael just put his headphones down really, really hard, and what the engineer to. had caught was the cord from the microphone hitting the mic stand. Like just kind just of swinging, thump, and it was thump, it thump, was thump. swinging for a good few minutes because I had apparently put my hung my yeah. headphones on the hooks with such force. Yeah, it was really that was kind of weird too that it was that it was strange because I don't remember when we left for a break. I wasn't right. like fuck it. I was just like, yeah. okay, cool. I'm just gonna put these up here. But who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But that's what we figured out. And then it was like, <gasps> you heard of this too. And we know it was funny how like that was the first time we really both knew that we're like that we mm-hmm. like confessed that we were into ghosts. So we're yeah. like, you think it's a ghost? It was just like immediately a connection. We're like, do you mm-hmm. I think? Yeah, like we were already friends beforehand, but that was like but that a was when we like really connection. connected over the ghost thing. And for trivia people out there, that show was Spice and Wolf. Okay. Oh. One of my favorites. Such a good show. Okay. So, Granbury is a city and county seat of Hood County, Texas. Mm -hmm. It's 35 miles southwest of Fort Worth and has a population of around 8,000 people. It's not small. It's not big. It's not big. Although Granbury is a small city, it has quite the history. Yeah. Especially regarding some famous and infamous characters of the 19th century. For example, (laughs) Davy Crockett's wife, Elizabeth 
settled in Hood County following the Texas Revolution. Crockett, as well as other Alamo participants, received land grants, and the Crockett family received land in what is now Hood County. Okay. A large statue of her marks the grave of Elizabeth Crockett, an Action State historic site, the smallest state park in Texas. Action Several state. Action State. Several there's a cemetery. This doesn't make sense. Um <laughs> several of Crockett's descendants still reside in Hood County. Huh. Still, yeah. I didn't know that. The one and only Jesse James. They're so close. Jesse well, James. One the one and only infamous and deceased Jesse James, mm. I guess is who I'm talking about. Uh we know who we're talking about. He's reportedly buried in the city of Granbury Cemetery. Contrary to the popular legend about James, it is believed by many, including many of his adult grandchildren, that James changed his name and lived in to old age in Granbury. Mm. So you can check out all of this online. It's a whole other episode. Yeah. It's so yeah. intense about proving that. And it's pretty convincing. That yes, I, I've, I've looked into that myself mm-hmm. and I, I don't know what to think, but it's not. It's hard to completely dismiss it. Mm-hmm. It is. Uh, likewise, an argument can also be made that William Bonney, better known as Billy the Kid, moved to Granbury after reportedly being shot and killed in New Mexico by lawman Pat Garrett. As the story goes, friend and sheriff, sh- friend and sheriff Pat Garrett staged the kid's death and ordered him out of the New Mexico territory in order to live. Bonney may well have headed to Granbury before later moving and retiring near Hico, Texas, who claims to be the home and final resting place of the kid. This is another fascinating rabbit hole to dive into, and same thing. Tons of history on it. That's my thing. Tons my, of my jam yeah. too. Like yeah. old west outlaws that history. I know. Oh. All a lot of it is. I mean, there's a lot of that happened in Texas, but Granbury seemed to attract a lot of that shit. Okay. The main, and perhaps strangest local take is the haunting of the beautiful and historic Granbury Opera House that was originally built in 1886. It was a grand structure which even shared space with a saloon. Oh, well, naturally. Naturally. In 1911, though, along with a number of other establishments, it was forced to close by the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Boo! Which wanted to abolish all drinking of alcohol and fun. I'll drink to that. <laughs> I'll drink to that. Uh, it remained closed and unoccupied for the next 63 years. Jesus. I know. Texas, we really like to hold on to our buildings. even it's if they're true. Not And you know what's funny is that there were opera houses in almost all of the major cities in Texas. They it were was huge. The thing. Yeah, it was well, before, the main before, city before, before cinema yeah. became a mm-hmm. thing, opera was the art form. Theater. It, it, it was uh, theater. It was, it was theater, you know. Yeah. But it also, it, opera especially, like... Gave everyone work. Every artist, yeah. if you had in any form of art, you could be used in right. opera. Because it, it dance, music, singing, composing, painting, sculpting, costuming, like mm-hmm. all of it was there. And they spent some money. So all any city, if it wanted to be a tourist destination, had to have, it was like having a concert venue now. Yes. Or a stadium. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's or what opera con- houses used to be. Or even a convention center, mm-hmm. to be fair. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... It was about to be demolished when a group of citizens took it upon themselves to begin restoration. When it reopened in 1975, patrons were astounded at the quality of the restoration work, which made you feel as if you had walked through a time portal back into the 19th century. Ghosts started to be reported then. Mm-hmm. Granbury Opera House underwent extensive renovations in 2014 that cost $3.5 million. Oof. It's a big one. Of course, where there is construction, there is a way. For yeah, ghosts tend to, to come happen. out. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like it's like dusting off a mat. 
Yeah. <laughs> they say that if you're having problems with a ghost in an older home, paint it. Mm. Paint your walls, paint the rooms, and it helps. Do you know in Key West, they, they paint all the porches, uh, the blue. ceilings, a blue, sea yeah. blue, because it's thought to keep ghosts out. Right. And it's just become traditional. There's something else that I heard recently that's a completely different reason. But I forget what it is. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. Uh, okay. Employees and patrons often report they've seen a translucent apparition of a man who was wearing a white shirt, black waistcoat, black pants, and high black boots. Several employees said they had been frightened while closing up at night by the apparition suddenly appearing on stage and reciting lines from some of Shakespeare's plays. I like this ghost. Hold that thought. Numerous actors, theater workers, and even the managing director have reported hearing unexplained footsteps walking back and forth along the balcony when no one was up there. Like our original storyteller. Huh? The ghost seems to be rather mischievous, as he often will flush a urinal at the end of the row in the men's restroom when it is occupied by only one person standing at the other end. Ladies sometimes walk into a cold spot outside the ladies' room even when the air conditioning is not on, but evidently the spirit is a gentleman as nothing strange ever happens inside the room. Well, that's nice. That's very nice. Often, after the crew has cleaned up and are preparing to lock the doors and leave for the night, the last call light will turn off by itself. Tom, a longtime worker, has sworn that one night he was walking toward the last call light to turn it off. A switch flicked off by itself and he heard a man's voice whisper, I got it, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> it's helpful. It's a helpful spirit. I got you, boo. That's right. Some say the ghost is the spirit of a man who went by the name of John St. Helen. St. Helen arrived in the nearby town of Glen Rose. Uh, it's really not far away from Granbury. And landed a job as a school teacher. He also ran an acting school for the children of upper class families. John mm -hmm. fell in love and became engaged to the daughter of a well-known local politician. He wanted them to have a quiet ceremony, but the bride had other ideas and began the planning. Uh -oh. Due to her parents' status and money, the wedding was to be a splendid affair with many high-powered politicians and elected officials in attendance. When John was shown the guest list, it included a number of soldiers and the U.S. Marshal for the Eastern District of Texas. St. Helen immediately called off the marriage and left town. What? Uh-oh. After seeing that guest list. He had some history. A full year later, St. Helen showed up in Granbury where he got a job as a bartender at the saloon adjoining the theater. He stood out because of a distinctive limp, a southern accent, and his strange habit of reciting lines from Shakespeare while having a conversation. Every year on April 15th, the anniversary of Lincoln's assassination, he became roaring drunk and spent the night sleeping it off in the back room of the saloon. No! No, no. Let me finish. Sorry, I'm, no. I know who it is now, or who they, often, they're trying to make us think it is. He would often attend plays at the Opera House, sitting quietly and intensely watching throughout the performance. When the director decided to perform a Shakespearean play, John tried out and won the leading role. Everyone was extremely impressed with his acting ability, and he was requested to be in other plays, but he always refused, unless the shows were Shakespeare. St. Helen had lived quietly in Granbury for several years when he became severely ill. The local doctor examined him and said he would soon die from his disease. The next day, John called for his friend and lawyer, Finnis L. Bates, to come to his deathbed. Apparently, he sent for a priest as well, which meant they had to get someone from Dallas, which is like 70 miles away. 
long time. That's a long distance. In that yes. Time. According to Baker, in a weak, barely audible voice, St. Helen confessed that he was actually John Wilkes Booth, the assassin of President Abraham Lincoln. Damn. He then gave Bates several of his possessions and instructions for his burial. A few days later, St. Helen and the doctor were surprised when he woke up one morning feeling much better. After several days, it became evident he would survive his terminal illness. Mm-hmm. Summoning his friend Bates again, John told him that the leader of the conspiracy to assassinate Lincoln was Vice President Andrew Johnson, and the identity of the man mortally wounded in the Garrett Tobacco Barn, where mm-hmm. John Wilkes Booth was yeah. killed, we'll go over that in a minute, uh, was a plantation overseer by the name of Ruddy St. Helen. Could be Rudy, but it looks like Ruddy. Booth had asked Ruddy to fetch his papers, which had fallen out of his pocket while crossing the Rappathanic, Rappathanic River. Sound that sure. works for me. Uh, Ruddy was able to retrieve Booth's papers, and while still in possession of them, Ruddy was mortally wounded in the Garrett barn, thus leading his captors to believe that he was Booth. Hmm. The night following his recovery, John abruptly left town without telling anyone where he was going. When Bates heard he had left, he opened a small chest that St. Helen had given him and found a Colt single-shot pocket pistol wrapped <laughs> in a in the front page of a Washington, D.C. newspaper dated April 16th, 1865, the day after Lincoln's assassination. Yeah. And, like, the, the review for Our American Cousin was right, <laughs> circled. <yeah. laughs> Loved it. Very dramatic. Very strong cast. Uh, nothing more was heard of St. John, John St. Helen until 1903, when Bates heard about an alcoholic named David George who had committed suicide in Enid, Oklahoma. I have family in Enid. Mm. <laughs> it's not far from where my parents' house was. Uh, a house painter, George had an affinity for quoting Shakespeare. For reasons known only to himself, he purchased strychnine from several druggists and ingested the poison. He bar- apparently told them all he was trying to kill... A stray dog or cats or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, they just give you poison for anything back yeah. then. When neighbors Made in for the... a tree stump. <laughs> okay. When neighbors in the rooming house where he was living heard loud moans coming from his room, they broke in to find him writhing in pain. They summoned a doctor who arrived within 10 minutes. As he lay dying, he told Mrs. Jesse May Coon that he didn't want to be buried under a false name. He claimed he was actually John Wilkes Booth. And told the doctor numerous very specific details of the night President Lincoln had been killed. Hmm. He said, I killed the greatest man that ever lived. She thought he was delirious from the poison. Doesn't sound like something Booth would have said. Right. That's just my own take. Uh Uh-huh. So, Bates immediately traveled to Enid and was shown the unclaimed body in question. After careful and thorough examination, he concluded that it was indeed the body of his former friend, John St. Helen, due to matching scars and features. The arsenic-embalmed body sat for eight years on display at the funeral home because no one would claim it. Eight years? Eight years. So because they embalmed him with arsenic, it kept him very lifelike. Oh. Yeah. And so they just, like, put him in a chair and put a newspaper in his lap. And I'm like, here's our damn body. Oh, it's not wonderful. It was, it was Oklahoma. What else were they going to do? It was either tornadoes or... <laughs> or, like... Mummy. <laughs> cousin John is... Right. They propped... Okay, so... But, but, but Bates eventually claimed him and kept him in his freaking garage in Memphis. What? Because he, he had moved to Memphis by then. What did they do? Uh-huh. <laughs> Bates what? ended up, he ended up writing a book. <laughs> this is so fucked I know. up. Uh, just wait. Uh, he ended up writing a book 
about his belief that these three men were actually all the same person, John Wilkes Booth. They all had a limp, and x-rays showed showed George had broken his leg right above the ankle. Later, Mm. Baker allowed the body tour to tour in circus sideshows until after World War I ended. In 1920, he rented the body to showman William Evans, huge circus show guy, Mm. uh, for $200 a month to be exhibited as a sideshow attraction. Evans still had the body when Bates died in 1923, so he purchased it from the widow Bates for $1,000. The body spent... Yeah, that's what he was spending every five months on him anyway, so... The body spent years traveling all around the country with various circuses until the 1950s when a man named R.K. Verbeck purchased John from a female landlord in Philadelphia who held it as collateral from a man who died owing a rent. (laughs) By the time... (laughs) uh, Yeah. He was able to travel to Philadelphia. The entire neighborhood had been raised and the body had disappeared. John turned up for the last time in the mid-1970s, once again touring in a small carnival. The carnival went out of business in the late 1970s and the body has never been found. And when it toured, it was toured as John Wilkes Wilkes Booth's body. It's hard to say. (laughs) Come to the John Wilkes Booth body booth. That's right. That's... Eh. That's... It's, uh... Yeah. I don't know what to feel about it. It's, it's, it's... Uh-huh. I don't... I don't know. How should I feel about this, Jamie? Well, let's get into it. Okay. Okay. According to the many reports coming from Granbury, Texas, the mysterious man's spirit has found its way there and is content to spend an eternity in the Granbury Opera House. So, let's go over some of the history as it's reported. Yes, okay. Okay. Of course, John Wilkes Booth is known for shooting President Lincoln mm-hmm. at the Ford's Theater in D.C. on April 14th, 1865. Right. Booth was an actor, a famous actor, actually. Mm-hmm. His father, Junius, mm-hmm. and his older brother, Edwin, were all actors. The three mm-hmm. of them even appeared together in Julius Caesar. Yeah. Junius played Cassius. Edwin was Brutus, incidentally, one of John Wilkes Booth's favorite roles to play, hence yep. shouting out the line, Six Sipper Semper Tyrannus, thus always to tyrants, <laughs> after shooting Lincoln. Yes. That's what he said. Yes. said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in this performance, John played Mark Antony. The proceeds of that performance went towards the statue of William Shakespeare in Central Park. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Little, I did not know that. Yeah, did you know that, so his brother was actually probably the most famous living uh-huh. actor of his yeah. day, and John Wilkes Booth felt that he was in his shadow constantly uh-huh. and couldn't this actually fucking stand says, it. Edwin and John were also rivals, mm-hmm. Edwin being the old school British style actor like their father, and John was more American in his approach. Both were insanely popular, but Edwin was more so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was, was older enough that he always got the, the, the really good roles. Yeah, he got to yeah. choose them. And there was something, too, they did a show together... And Edwin asked the audience, they're like, what do you think? He did a good job, didn't he? Yeah, and yeah. Ooh. Instead of seeing it, I think, as a, an encouraging thing, John was like, Mrah. Patronizing. Yeah, patronizing. Ooh. So Booth was a huge fan of Shakespeare, as well as slavery in the Confederate slash losers. I don't like that those things were put together like that. I, I don't either. I love Shakespeare, and I hate slavery. Well, and Edwin was union. Like, when, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. The, they were kind of this epitome of... They, their relationship was positively Shakespearean. Oh, yes, absolutely. But in at the time, because it was the Civil War, it was brother fighting brother. Yeah. They were the, in the papers, the people that were proof of that. Do you know when their parents immigrated uh, to the U.S., they came over on a boat called the Brothers? Oh, I didn't know that. Uh-huh. Did you know that... Uh, 
their mother was their father's mistress of many years. Uh-huh. And then they had to get uh, his first wife filed divorce for adultery. And then they got married, but only when he was like 18 or something like that. Crazy. Yeah. Very Shakespearean. Anyway. Uh, uh, uh. So, so he thought he could and... change things by killing Lincoln. There was this huge plot, yada, yada, yada. Do that research. We don't have the time to go into all of it. <laughs> yeah. He shoots Lincoln in the back of the head, which killed him the following day, April 15th. Tax day. Terrible day in history. Booth- <laughs> <laughs> You'd Booth- think they'd change tax day after that, but no. <laughs> uh, Booth then shouted his Brutus line, jumped to the stage from the box where he apparently injured or broke his leg, which... I enjoy thinking like he just did this horrible thing and then he's like going to make this big, you know, Brutus line and he's going to jump to the stage and then he just hits it like just falls flat on his face because he just snapped his leg. Yeah. (laughs) That's what you fucking get, dude. Right. Okay. According to most accounts, Booth fled by a stage door to the alley where his getaway horse was waiting for him. He then proceeded to flee towards Virginia. Mm. Now, what I find interesting and hilarious is that <laughs> Booth found out how the death of Lincoln affected the country before he reportedly died. Everyone warned the president and the many newspapers he followed that had criticized Lincoln, which had directly affected Booth and the other conspirators' actions. Those newspapers started criticizing him and lamenting the death of a great president. He even mm-hmm. wrote in his journal... With every man's hand against me, I am here in despair. And why? For doing what Brutus was honored for. But if he paid attention to history and the fucking play <laughs> that he was in multiple Brutus times. Didn't end well. It didn't end well. And he yeah. was not. Brutus, they were the the people turned on the people who killed uh, Caesar. Yes. Like massively and then the conspirators fought each other mm-hmm. and Cassius and Brutus did one side Mark Antony and Octavius which was uh his nephew right it was a, it was a yeah it was a nephew but he nephew. was like he was basically Caesar's adopted son right yes um they chose sides Brutus ended up committing and, suicide and he, like, kicked their asses yeah. yeah and Brutus committed suicide because he knew he was going to lose in battle yep yeah yep and then Mark Antony and Octavian started mm-hmm. they fought each other and it, anyway History repeats itself. <laughs> anyway, so... Be- Life imitating art, imitating history, imitating art. That's right. Before dawn on April 26th, 1965, 1865, sorry. Um, <laughs> and if you ever get the chance, look up the the, the coincidences between Lincoln's assassination oh, and Kennedy's, Kennedy's assassination. Yeah. That's it's a whole other thing. fucking creepy. Yeah, de- look it that really shit up. Is. It's crazy. So soldiers tracked and caught up with, the bo- with Booth and his fugitive companion, David Harold who were hiding in a tobacco barn. Harold immediately surrendered. Booth refused, saying he would rather come out and fight. So the soldiers set fire to the barn. As Booth moved about inside the blazing barn, Sergeant Boston Corbett shot him, even though they were supposed to take him in alive. The sergeant later said that Booth was going to shoot them first, but that seems unlikely because Lieutenant Colonel Everton Conger, an intelligence officer who was the one tracking Booth, Mm -hmm. recommended Corbett be punished for disobeying orders. Booth, fatally wounded in the neck, was dragged from the barn where he died three hours later, age 26. The bullet had pierced three vertebrae and partially severed his spinal cord, paralyzing him. In his dying moments, he reportedly whispered, tell my mother I died for my country, asking that his hands be raised to his face so that he could see them. Such a fucking dramatic thing to do. Booth uttered his last words, useless, useless. (laughs) 
and died as dawn was breaking. <laughs> I just so you're, fucking you're, dramatic. It, of course, he's an actor. Yeah. And 26. Yeah. By then, he already knew the South had lost because between that time, the news had traveled that bad, these important battles yeah. had, mm-hmm. they had lost. Mm-hmm. So he was taken to Baltimore, identified by at least 10 people who knew him because he had a tattoo JWB on his left hand and a distinct scar on his neck. Mm. The conspiracy theories are numerous. Uh, what? Right. Wait, a famous assassination with conspiracy theories attached Anything to it? ever? A conspiracy uh, theory. Yeah, that's weird. Uh, one is what St. Helen claimed on his not-so-death deathbed, that <laughs> Andrew Johnson organized it. There's a suggestion that Secretary of War Edwin Stanton was the ringleader, and that Stanton arranged to facilitate the escape of Booth. That book came out in 1935. And in the same year, 1937 maybe, in the same year, uh, in this one mad act by Isola Forrester, a great-granddaughter of John Wilkes Booth, or grandniece, or a great-grand-something of her, him. He didn't have kids, so that wouldn't have been possible. But anyway, evidence is presented that members of her family were in personal contact with the assassin for a generation after 1865. Hmm. Another is that the soldiers accidentally got the wrong body, so they covered it up. Bates claimed in his book that he wrote about his traveling friend, the mummy, (laughs) that it could be proven that the government knew they had the wrong guy because they never paid out the ransom. Except in the National Archives, you can totally find the receipts for the payout. (laughs) Of course, the 10 people who knew him and identified him could have seen the body, realized it was not him, and then lied to protect Booth. However... (laughs) In the transcripts of the trial, several of the soldiers present that night at the barn testified that they had known Booth previously and declared the body was Booth. Lieutenant Colonel Conger, the one who was pissed about Sergeant Corbett shooting Booth, he testified that after Booth was shot and and before he died, he took a stone set and jet from Booth's person on which was engraved Dan Bryant to J.W. Booth. Bryant was an actor and friend of the Booth family. Two independent sources from prior to the assassination confirmed that Bryant did, in fact, give Booth such a pin and that he kept it pinned under his undershirt, pinned to his undershirt. The fact that he even had a pin and that he kept it fastened to his undershirt was not public knowledge at the time. Of course, conspiracy theorists would say they added that one little fact to convince people it was really him. There are just so many facts, though. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's not looking good for the conspiracy. Yeah. Although the body wasn't even turned over to the Booth family until 1969, four years after he died, they had their dentist look at it and and to see if it it matched with dental records, showing Mm -hmm. that it was him, enough to convince them. Of course, Mm. conspiracy theorists, the family already said publicly he was dead to them. They wanted the whole thing to be over. Uh, Edwin was in charge of identifying the body, too. In 1937, Mm. the mummified remains of the alleged John Wilkes Booth earned in excess of $100,000. This story should have been a moneymaker for the people involved. Baker wrote a book and literally leased out the mummy. People who purchased the mummy took it on tour. It didn't make sense for them to say it was just some dude from Enid, Oklahoma. Well, yeah. yeah, Yeah, I mean... Yeah. What I find hard to believe is that he actually performed at the Opera House, no matter who he is. So it's said that St. Helen moved to Granbury in the 1870s. Yeah. That Opera House was originally built in 1886. Uh Uh-oh. So Lee 
Lincoln was killed in 1865. That was 21 years before the opera house was built. Uh-huh. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of time. There, you would think of somebody been, he spent... He would have been in his late 40s. Yes. By then, by the 40s, time, 50s. And I mean, of course, people in their late 40s and early 50s do perform on stage and stuff. Sure. But as I looked, I found that um, he would have had to be there, one thing, a, a while. Right. For, to have performed at the Opera House. And there would be records of him being yeah. there if he lived somewhere for 20 years. Yes. Right? Well, especially if he was engaged to be married... That was in the neighboring town. Okay, but still, like yeah. he would have, like they, he would have been known. Yeah, like, he, he was engaged be. to be married to a very wealthy socialite. Mm-hmm. So, uh, did, even even if he did, okay, he would have left there eighteen eighty six. He would have had to leave in like eighteen ninety probably mm-hmm. or eighteen eighty six at the very mm-hmm. earliest, mm-hmm. because that's when the opera house was built. However, it seems Baker's story about Saint Helen's illness happened. In 1878, before the opera house was ever built. Hmm. Baker also said at the time that he didn't believe St. Helen. And that was, it was just an unfortunate aspect of St. Helen's character. Baker moved to Memphis, and it was believed that St. Helen moved to Colorado, so they lost touch. So the leaving the next day part of the story under mysterious circumstances seems to be an embellishment. Yeah. Now, in 1900, Bates wrote the War Department and the Department of State in an unsuccessful attempt to claim the $100,000 reward advertised following Lincoln's assassination. He already had the body by then. No, 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 he didn't have it by then. It wasn't until 1903. So right. But still, he's after money. Of course he's after money. Right. Then, in the early 1920s, he wrote the FBI about Booth's possible escape. But this was well after he was making money off of George's corpse. Sort of. We'll get there. (laughs) Then, you have Henry Ford's involvement. Whoa. This was this crazy last minute thing. So Okay. And remember, Lincoln was shot in what theater? The Ford Theater. Theater. Oh, shit. Henry Ford, maker of the Ford. We all know who we're talking about. So the car, the car. Um, so in May of 1916, the Chicago in the Chicago Daily Tribune, Ford said, "History is more or less bunk. It's tradition. We don't want tradition. We want to live in the present, and the only history that is worth a tinker's damn is the history we make today." That did not go over well. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of the stuff uh, that Ford said did not go over well. And so about a month later, (laughs) the Chicago Daily Tribune printed an editorial calling Ford out for basically not saving jobs for soldiers. So the soldiers would go fight in the war. And he was like, when you come back, you can apply, but you're not going to have any better chance of getting a job than anybody else. So that's not a good person. No, terrible. And a Nazi sympathizer. So. He couldn't a be on Facebook. Pretty open. He could be on Twitter. We need to fix that. But he could More be than a sympathizer. Oh yeah. Like oh yeah. He was doing what he could to like start a fascist party here in the mm-hmm. United States, from what yeah. I understand. Yeah. Like, so fuck that guy. Um. Anyway, in the article that called him out, they said, "If Ford allows this rule of his shops to stand, he will reveal himself not merely as an ignorant idealist, but as an anarchist and an enemy of the nation which protects him in his wealth." Mm. That could be said today about so many people. Right? Yeah. So Ford sued them for libel. Uh, He was asking for a million dollars. It was early 1900s, right? He Uh. won six cents. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's even better. I know. Like, he won six Here you whole go. pennies. Six whole pennies. Um, but back then, it go was like ten whole nice. pennies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he won, like, the equivalent of, like, $5. You know, something like that, yeah. So d- he spent eight days on the stand <laughs> testifying during this trial. It was a huge eight trial. Eight fucking days? Yeah. Uh, and he was forced to explain his history as bunk line, and he was pissed about it. He didn't like that people took that out of, you know, of all the things he could have said to go run away with. Mm-hmm. That seems like the weirdest right. one. But he hated how people saw it, so he sought to prove history was really bunk. So he, this became God. this thing with him. Like, oh. I'm going to prove then that history is bunk so that people know that I'm telling the truth, that I'm not oh just saying God. it. So... He had seen Baker's book around 1907, so in 1919, he decided to research it. If Baker was telling the truth about Booth, that would certainly prove history was bunk, right? <laughs> so he had Frederick <laughs> Lee Black, a business Bored, manager. angry, rich dude. I know. Like, right? Nah, I'm going to no, find this no, thing. I like it. I care too much about what other people think. <clears throat> so he had Frederick Lee Black, business manager of the Dearborn Independent, investigate Baker's claims. Baker immediately tried to sell Ford the body for a thousand dollars. It's like it's totally real. Yeah, and I think I think Ford had bought the chair that Lincoln was shot in. Uh-huh. So anyway. It's like it'll be great. It'll be great. We'll it'll buy great. the chair. We'll put Booth in it. Yeah. It'll be it's everything you ever wanted. And and Ford was like <laughs> really ties eh, the room together. Maybe not. Uh so between 1919 and 1923, Black, amidst his many other duties for Ford, conducted extensive research, not only into Bates' specific claims as presented in his 1907 book, but into many other controversial topics connected with the Lincoln assassination as well. However, Black, at the end of his research, concluded that many of Bates' claims were untrue and advised Ford not to purchase the mummy. An archive of the documents Frederick Black collected and his manuscript are located in the Kresge. K-R-E-S-G-E, Kresge Library at Oakland University in Michigan. So, hmm. seems likely that Booth was killed when Booth was killed outside of a tab- tobacco barn in 1865. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing that gets me with all the conspiracy stuff is, when has somebody been used as a scapegoat that didn't get executed? Right. Why would they let him live? That's yeah. not how... That's big government how, that's, conspiracies work. That's not generally how it works. Look at Lee Harvey Oswald. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dead. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, <sighs> it could, And that's not to say maybe it was a conspiracy. But if it was, they did the right thing and killed him at the tobacco barn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not the right thing. Whatever, but they killed the him. Like, thing. It, the thing that they said they did, they did. Yes. Um, now, does that mean... That Grammar House isn't haunted? I don't for a fucking second think that it's not haunted. There are too many stories that it's go along with it. By John it's just Booth. not haunted by John Wilkes Booth. It's just not haunted by John Wilkes Booth. But maybe it's haunted by an actor who well, wanted people to believe he was John Wilkes yes. Booth. Because actors want attention. Well, and they'll say too he that was like, I have a limp. he was tall. You know, and it could have been this um, this St. Helen guy. Mm-hmm. He, still, he could be haunting it. But um, it's just... Uh, Interesting to because they say he's tall, but John Wilkes Booth was five eight, and people weren't as tall back then. But yeah, five eight wasn't. Five eight wasn't, five eight wasn't tall, tall back then either. So it was pretty uh, average. Yeah, but it was the limp, and it mm-hmm. was you know some other stuff. But I don't think that it's John Wilkes Booth for a hot second. Uh, but I do think it's definitely haunted. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of other I call them notable rabbit holes you can go down oh, God, researching yes. this. So the killer. Of John Wilkes Booth, mm-hmm. Sergeant Boston Corbett. Yes. He was a mentally unstable man. 
He castrated himself in the 1850s to help him resist sin. Uh-huh. Do I? Okay. Uh-huh. He later, Isn't it a sin to hurt yourself? like commit one sin to keep from committing it that seems like a snake uh, eating its own tail it seems like somebody wasn't getting medication because they didn't have it at the time mm. he later served as sergeant of arms to the kansas legislature and fired off two pistols on a legislative session he was confined to a mental institution after that but later escaped and vanished <laughs> wow oh my god what's the guy's name again his name is sergeant boston corbett Boston Corbett, that name's great, no, name. great name. Boston Corbett castrated himself so he wouldn't commit sin. Uh huh. Fired off pistols. Just an, an at a legislative straight session. Straight up nutter. Yeah. Was con- was was put away and escaped, escaped and, and was never vanished. seen again. Mm-hmm. Maybe he. He's who haunts. Maybe it. he was never there. Saint Helen. Could be. I don't know. In but he, in his in his madness, in his madness, he's mad. He's he decided. Mad. He decided he was John Wilkes Booth. I feel like that happened to a lot of people. I feel like both of these guys... <laughs> but if it was going to happen to anyone, the guy that actually killed him was a prime candidate That's true. to actually... Have... It was me the whole time. I killed myself, but not... Uh, and the, <laughs> yeah, the other guy, too, saying, I killed the greatest man that ever lived. Yeah, he would not have felt no, that. No, he wouldn't have said no. that. No. No. Booth so, hated Lincoln. Uh-huh. I mean, obviously, because he didn't just kill he him hated, to be famous. He fucking hated Lincoln he hated because he thought Lincoln brother. was a... And his oh, yeah. brother liked Lincoln, and mm-hmm. it was all a family bull. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the point is, too, the thing that I keep coming back to is, like, he knew that he had fucked up and given him more support by killing him. Whoopsies. <laughs> Whoopsies. You're dead. You're dead. And a ghost. Somewhere. Somewhere. He's got to be a ghost somewhere. But I don't think it's at the <laughs> Granbury Opera House. So the last thing that I want to bring up is my present for you on this mm-hmm. lovely day. Oh. But this, you've already given me so much. I know. But this is the rumored curse of the mummy. Of John <gasps> yes, the mummy's curse. My favorite <laughs> kind. I know. Okay. <laughs> so the mummy, ske- this is what I found. And I was like, hold on, I've got to finish this because it got here and I just found something else. I was like, I got to get all this down so that you can have it. Okay. So the mummy scattered ill luck around almost as freely as Tutankhamun is alleged to have done. Ooh, I'm going to do a story about that one day. Nearly every showman who exhibited the mummy was subsequently ruined financially. Eight people and numerous animals were killed in the wreck of a circus train in 1902 on which the mummy was traveling and not injured. Like, not damaged at all. <laughs> it's that big famous circus. And we don't circus, know who this body is. is, is the body train. is of this guy. David George. Who may have been the St. Helens guy. Maybe was the St. Helens guy. Probably was just David George. Okay. He was an alcoholic. Mm. And the picture of him, he's got a big old burly mustache, and they try to make it look. And I'll post some of that stuff on Instagram. But Yeah, I want to say, I've never seen this, this they mummy. Just, they all... All of them look like Edgar Allan Poe. That's what they all look like. It's like, if, if, if someone wanted to spend a conspiracy that they were all Edgar Allan Poe, then they might get my attention. But oh my right God. now, I'm just not buying Edgar it. Allan Poe is a god of chaos, just it's going true. from body to body. That's right. All I mean, the same. I'll show so you like, in a little bit. You'll be like, right, oh my God, they do. do. <laughs> okay. So, you know that the big circus train wreck? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He was on that. <laughs> uh, it was owned by Bill Evans. And... Um, 
He, he was a wealthy carnival king who bought the exhibit in later years. Oh, Bill Evans, the pianist? Oh, no, no just a, a carnival guy. Okay. No, that that was even a person who played the piano. So who uh, he bought the exhibit in later years. He was financially ruined by continual strokes of bad luck after the purchase, including that train wreck. The mummy was even stolen post-train wreck, and there was a reward offered for its return. Eventually, the person who stole kidnapped the body, returned it. They said kidnapped. Evans was killed. Well, it becomes family after a while. I guess so. Evans was killed in 1935 during a holdup in Chicago. Ooh. Bates, the original owner, wrote a book in 1907 called The Escape and Suicide of John Wilkes Booth, which attempted to prove that the mummy was, in fact, John Wilkes Booth. Mm -hmm. He suffered much ridicule because of that book and died penniless in 1923. So that's why, and that's the year to... That they were like, don't buy that mummy. Don't do It's not worth yeah, it. He died that year. And so he was desperate for money for a long time, which explains the, hey, I want that reward. Hey, you should do that. You know, look at this mummy. So lucky for, wow. luckily for his um, wife, she sold it for $1,000. So she had a little bit after that. But <laughs> perhaps the only person to sponsor the mummy and not suffer strokes of financial bad luck was Reverend True Wilson. It must be pointed out that Wilson was largely responsible for originally getting the Prohibition Law passed. However, shortly after Wilson Asshole. bought the mummy, the repeal of the Prohibition Law was made official. <laughs> the body was last seen in a Midwestern carnival in the late 1970s. I wonder where it is now. Nobody knows. Oh, I wonder where it is I now. I know. Oh, what a great story. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, oh, my God. And we never did figure out who the ghost is. I it's know. It's still a mystery. It's still a mystery, but people see the same dude. Oh! Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Be great if there is a connection to like like they're not none of them are John Wilkes Booth, but they're all like connected. Mm-hmm. Like all these these men are like, Yeah, that's my ghost because I'm the guy that wanted to be John Wilkes Booth. Yeah, right. They just think it. Like, but the and the I guess the idea is ooh, he found a theater after death for some people, but it's like, nah, I don't buy it. Yeah. Well like- that's the thing that you said earlier about the the, the whole the, the Saint Helens guy, like trying mm-hmm. out for a Shakespeare play and doing it, whatever. He called off a wedding because he was afraid of the guest list. And then he, then he wants to get on stage in front of the public. Right. Like, fuck that. That's not. No, right. That's not I don't think thing. he called off the, the wedding because of the guest list. I think he called off the wedding. Yeah. But, it yeah. Wasn't but he wasn't of afraid of coming. like, yeah, he wasn't yeah. afraid of like the Pinkertons or whatever. Right. Um, what a great story. Thanks. That was awesome. Oh yeah. my God, I want to go back and like, well, do all the research on the other assassination. Is that Granbury does have a ghost tour? We have to go. I know. There was an episode, you, there was an episode of Ghost Lab where they go to some other warehouse where it's somewhere else, it's not Granbury, um, where it's also rumored John Wilkes Booth survived oh, yeah. and lived his days out in this little room above this warehouse. And Oh, God, the episode is so unintentionally funny. They do the history, and it's really fascinating. And like you said, mm-hmm. they get to the, the hunt part, and they try to do, they try to make it too cool. With that show, they try to make it too cool. Right. So, like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a holographic head of Abraham Lincoln yes. played by the guy that owned the warehouse. That was the warehouse been, and not the Granbury Opera House? I thought it was. No, because this wasn't in Granbury. This was up in Oklahoma. Um <gasps> I think they episode. went to Enid. That was where the guy. That's where they that's went. That's where yes. the yes, it's the yes. same episode. So it's, okay, it's, and so they did. Okay, or at least so they, the same story. They went. Right? He, okay, okay, that that makes sense. That's where so they George went there, died. and that's where like they, they like apparently he worked the warehouse. They, this guy, that he was they a thought, painter. 
Yeah, and he lived in this little room. So they, anyway, so modern day, they hear there are these guys go, hey, they go to the landlord, like, do you want to help us? Because you look a lot like Abraham Lincoln. We'll just give you a hat, <laughs> like a beard. <laughs> and they do, and they have him down front there, like filming him. And he's like, so, was, and they project his his mm-hmm. head via hologram into the room of like, you know, it's spinning and it's like, why did you kill me, John Wilkes? <laughs> I have seen so, that. I know exactly what you're talking about. so bad. Yeah, yeah. And that's such an example, too, of, you know, they tell part of the history. They tell part of the story, not the whole thing, because they're trying to sell the episode and they're trying well, to yeah. sell the ghost story. It's not to say that the place isn't haunted as fuck. It's, it's just, just not haunted by who you think it is. Yeah, it's like everybody who's reincarnated can't be from fucking Cleopatra, right? right. Like, Sometimes you're just going to be a chambermaid. That's right. So mine uh-huh. is about the San Pedro haunting. Sometimes also referred to as the San Pedro, as the San Pedro San Pedro, I'm going to say it like 500 fucking ways just to make sure one of them's right. Mm. Poltergeist. <laughs> the Pedro P. The P, the San Pedro Poltergeist. So 60 miles south of Los Angeles in the bay town of San Pedro uh, sits a nondescript little turn-of-the-century bungalow not far from the harbor's edge. In November of 1988, 23-year-old divorcee Jackie Hernandez, pregnant with her second child, moved in to try and cut back on expenses. Now, she worked unforgiving hours at several unskilled jobs and often had to leave her two-year-old son, Jamie, in the care of next-door neighbor, Susan. Uh, oh, my gosh, or, that's funny. Right? That's my <laughs> right, saying. right, right. Or <laughs> an old high school friend named Tina Lawner. Okay. With little help from her estranged husband, who'd been a nightmare, Jackie struggled to make ends meet. Uh, she'd hoped renting the place would offer a fresh start, but with another mouth to feed on the way and finances already stretched to the breaking point, life in the ramshack, a little bayside starter... Shaped out to be a nightmare all its own, one that would take on supernatural proportions. I'm, I was hoping you would say that. Right? Now, events started inconspicuously, as they often do in cases like this. Small household items went missing, only to turn up in very curious places. Her bid, uh, her bed, uh, her bed habitually collapsed for no reason. That's not cool. Uh, unaccountable cold spots popped up all over the house. Her cat fixated on dark dark corners and skittered away from unseen assailants. Jackie often found the attic hatch above the washing machine in the kitchen wide open. Though, nope. she, though she never ventured up there. That means somebody was living up there. The, we'll get to that. The okay. feeling of someone watching her bedeviled the poor woman day and night. Now, at first, she put it all down to sleep-deprived absent-mindedness. And the prerogative of old houses, of course, to make fucking noise and scare the shit out of you. Right. But voices mumbling in the attic above her bedroom weren't so easy to dismiss. No. Nor were the pencils sailing down the hallway from a mug on the fo- in the phone cubby or the shadows contorting in the corner of her eye. One like evening, it. while Susan was over, an earth-shattering crash sent the two women scurrying into the kitchen, where they discovered a large framed picture leaning casually against the black the backsplash. The nails, meant to hold it up, uh, in place on the wall opposite, were now arranged neatly along the kitchen table, standing straight up on their heads. Oh shit! Now one day, Susan was helping. So Becky. did it. So the the picture came off the wall. And just sort of floated, so somehow ended up on a mm-hmm. counter leaning against mm-hmm. the wall, mm-hmm. and then the nails were on top of that same counter upside down. On a kitchen table. On a kitchen table. Not even the counter. So like, the picture was on a different place than the nails. Yeah. Walls over here, empty. Cross from it, picture. Uh, okay. On another, another part of the kitchen, on the table, nails. Wow. Standing straight up, like someone had just arranged them. And nothing to account for the large the crash sound. 
um, which happens a lot in poltergeist cases. There's huge crash noises, and then nothing, and then like nothing but like where there ought to be, like stuff has been rearranged, but nothing broken. Like it sounds right. like shattering. Like you remember there was the one where like the black monk of Pontefract, like yeah. they heard the crash and they found like all the stuff in the cupboard had been put out and like neatly arranged <laughs> on the floor. Uh, oh. Stuff like that happens that a lot, and up. it's almost it's almost always preceded by a loud by crash. A loud crash. Um, okay. It's a very um, aesthetically driven poltergeist. Yeah, it's like they got to keep up with the. <laughs> this picture doesn't go on this wall. It's not feng shui. <laughs> it belongs here. Uh, now, one day, Susan was helping Jackie clean up after a light lunch at the sink. Jackie noticed what looked to be blood dripping from beneath her dish gloves. Assuming she'd somehow cut herself, she turned to show her friend and was stunned to see dark, pulsing red streaks oozing from a crack in the ceiling. She jumped up onto the washer and poked her head into the attic, trying to figure out where the hell it was coming from. The grudge hadn't come out yet, so... In the corner of the attic, beneath the rafters at the far end floated the ghastly severed head <gasps> of an old man. Ah! His eyes glowed red, and his mouth was twisted into a horrible rictus. The apparition wheeled at her quickly. Jackie fell backward onto her ass on the kitchen floor, shrieking, and refused to enter that fucking attic ever, ever. again. Yeah. Now, during the day... Tina Lawner often babysat Jamie while Jackie and Susan were at work. On several occasions, uh, when putting the boy down for a nap, Tina discovered the door to his bedroom wide open seconds after she'd just closed it. One night, as Tina helped Jackie with dinner, both women spotted large globs of light creeping across the ceiling. Uh, Jackie grabbed a camera and tried tried to take some pictures, but the damn thing refused to cooperate. Tina took it in frustration and pointed it at the kitchen window for a test shot. Both women screamed to see the face of a withered old man peering it at them from outside. It disappeared. They went to investigate. There had been no one out there. It was, yeah. And and, uh, Jackie said it looked like the head. It had been in the attic. Mm. Now, Jackie told her ex-husband, Al, of the spooky goings-on in the San Pedro house. He mocked her. Of course he did. He was a piece of shit. Right. And suggested she use a Ouija board to make contact with whatever it was. Make friends. Give it a name. Blah, 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 blah. he's full of bad ideas, too. Following this conversation, Jackie found the name Al scrolled hundreds of times in her closet. The landlord avowed that no other tenants had ever experienced anything paranormal on the property, but urged Jackie to call in some priests all the same, just to be safe. The priests were no help. They laid the blame squarely on Jackie's predilection for horror movies, which she didn't actually have. And amazingly, a toy skeleton floating in her aquarium, which they thought was satanic. Oh my gosh. <laughs> they even called in CPS, convinced Jackie might indeed be cavorting with the devil and that her children were in danger. Now, so sweet. Fucking assholes. So the activity escalated after Samantha, her daughter, was born in April of 89. Bringing her home from the hospital, Jackie found the magnetic letters on her fridge rearranged to spell, Get the Hell Out. Oh. In addition to the usual complement of noises, cold spots, voices in the attic, orbs, and mysteriously moving objects, Jackie often dreamed she was a young man, circa 1930, being bludgeoned and drowned in the harbor outside. She awoke from the upteenth iteration of this dream one night to the sound of loud, labored breathing coming from Jamie's room down the hall. Now, lately, her son had been sleeping in the room with her, next to little Samantha's bassinet. 
She checked. Jamie was beside her, fast asleep. The baby hadn't stirred either. So careful not to wake them, she crept down the hall and peeked into Jamie's room. The emaciated old man no! was sitting cross-legged on the bed as if waiting for her. His skin was gray and sunken. His eyes shone an evil red. He wore a flannel vest and had high water pants. She was able to note that just before true to form, he vanished. At that same instant, every shutter in the house flung open. Yeah, the and then time. she pissed herself. <laughs> well, we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Jackie's problems soon caught the attention of our old pal, Dr. Barry Taff with Yay. UCLA, the parapsychologist who worked on the Doris Bithers case. He went mm -hmm. to the comedy store. He's been involved in a lot of um, cases. Some of High them profile cases. High profile cases. Now, on August, August on all oh, these, these meals are so good, y'all. They're so good. Uh, in fact, I want another step before I get into this uh -oh. part of the story because now we get into the investigate. The investigating part. Hmm? Hmm. Heard the slur. I'm not taking that shit out. <laughs> no, it's real. It's me. Um, on August 8th, 1989. Taff and colleague Jeff Wheatcraft came to Hernandez's home to conduct a preliminary interview. Wheatcraft was a dyed-in-the-wool skeptic. He felt most claims of the kind Jackie was making were either misidentified natural phenomenon, the product of mental illness, or outright hoaxes. Upon entering, the men were struck by a foul odor pervading the home, not unlike that experienced by Doris Bithers, which oh. Taff had investigated just a few years earlier. Mm -hmm. When a barrage of loud thumping noises from the attic interrupted their interview, Wheatcraft ventured up with his 35mm camera to have a look. Mm. It sounded like a 200-pound rat, he would later say. Peeking through the hatch, he snapped three quick shots in succession. Suddenly... His expensive camera jerked out of his hands as if pulled by an unseen force. Retrieving it a bit later, Wheatcraft found the lens detached and thrown clear across the room in the opposite direction from where the camera lay. Clearly, whatever it was didn't care to be photographed. And we're not done with Wheatcraft. All right. Digging a bit deeper into Jackie's personal history, Taff concluded uh, her to be the ideal candidate for poltergeist activity. A string of abusive relationships, financial woes, high stress, some alcohol dependence, all of these tend to generate a negative worldview on which the phenomenon tends to feed. On August 28th, three weeks after the initial interview, Jackie phoned Taff in hysterics. Objects were whisking violently around her house when she tried to grab one from midair unseen hands grabbed her by the throat, threw her down, and pinned her to the floor. Oh, no. Thus was launched an investigation that would leave Taff, Wheatcraft, and several others involved convinced something malevolent was haunting not just the San Pedro house, but Jackie herself. The first night on the case, Wheatcraft and fellow investigator Gary Byrne were feeling their way across the rafters in the attic. It was dark, and they were hoping to provoke whatever it was into showing itself. While the men felt eyes on them from the moment they entered, the entity itself seemed reluctant to manifest. Before long, however, distinct orbs of light flashed in and out of existence all around them like fireflies, accompanied by the sound of snapping fingers, which were clearly audible to the team members waiting below. The phenomenon subsided, despite repeated provocations from the team to keep up. <laughs> uh, in the kitchen below, Jackie was suddenly overcome by a sense of foreboding and begged the men to come back down. Frustrated, Jeff and Gary were making their way back to the hatch when Jeff felt something wrap around his neck, jerk him backward, and pull at his legs. Byrne instinctively aimed his camera in Jeff's direction. <laughs> I love that it's like, oh, 
you're getting attacked. I'm going to take a picture. Well, that's what he says, too. And both men, like you see in the interview, is like, yeah, I just heard Gary go, like, something's got me, something's got me. And so oh, okay. he turned, and because there was no light, his first thought was just use the to flash to see what's going on. I the resulting you. flash picture is chilling. <gasps> a wide-eyed Jeff Wheatcraft snared by the neck on a length of cord wrapped around a <gasps> two-by-four beam, his legs akimbo. While this was going on, Taff noted a semi-clear fluid with a slight orange fluorescence to it dripping from a kitchen cabinet. Ew. He collected a sample for analysis. Lab results would later come back, confirming the substance uh, was heavily oxidized iodine-rich blood plasma <gasps> from a guy. Uh, wow. A traumatized but otherwise unharmed That's Jeff Wheatcraft. That's actually known as um, gold, like when it, that plasma, like when they separate... Oh, from yeah, your from yeah. your blood, like if you're getting some, like they have facial treatments and like and um, that's what it the needle, the need the the oh, micro needling, the the they'll do it with that stuff on and your they call face. Gold. Yeah, but they have to separate the blood for that to happen. Like yeah, which you have to put it like in the centrifugal uh, little the little centrifuge. They call it gold because it's pretty. It's very healing. Mm, mm, so worth a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Now, well, so, and it's kind of like a goldish color. It's like an amber, yeah, orange, yeah, yeah. It's fucking crazy, right? So, so Jeff Wheatcraft, you know, survived, you know, the, the attack. Um, he was traumatized, otherwise un, unharmed. He left that goddamn house and would never come back. But he'll come back into the story before we're done. Um, this did little to bolster uh, to bolster Jackie's courage. The haunting seemed to actually accelerate in direct proportion to the the involvement of outside help, which is unusual. Um, before long, the activity became more than she could bear. Concerned for the safety of her children, Jackie scrounged up what little cash she could and moved to a trailer park in Weldon, about 190 miles away. Oh, wow. That's a long way, right? It's the only place she could find where she could afford to live. Uh, the first few weeks in her new home passed without incident. Jackie breathed a sigh of relief, assuming whatever had plagued her in San Pedro had opted to stay there. In April of 1990, however, insistent scratching noises from the storage shed outside told her differently. The uh, the flurry of orbs she'd grown accustomed to in the bungalow followed shortly after. Oh, no. Her new neighbors, Jim and Janice Sorbet, did a, did a double take one night while they were over to see the face of a wilted, evil-looking old man reflected in the corner of Jackie's television screen. No. His eyes, they said, glowed red. Later, the entity manifested itself as a rank black mist which floated down the hallway and set fire to baby Samantha's bedspread. <gasps> Fortunately, the child was unharmed. Um, this prompted Taff and his colleagues to pay her another visit. So they packed up, drove, drove out, out there. That's a long drive. It, it was, but this was a fascinating case. And so they're like, well, we had activity at the old place. Let's see if it's still going on here. Um, on a whim... Recalling her ex-husband's tongue-in-cheek advice from earlier, Jackie thought, no. Why don't we use a Ouija board Jackie. and figure out what the hell this thing wants? Jackie, no. Now, present at this little impromptu seance were Taff, Wheatcraft, and Jackie's friend Tina, who'd come with them. <laughs> uh, Yay, Tina. I like that Tina's down. She's like, fucking let's do it. Right. Now, though the results were astonishing, any attempt to record them failed. Cameras and sound equipment alike declined to operate properly in the entity's presence. All we have are the eyewitness accounts of four people, which run as follows. <gasps> Taff spoke, and the planchette moved of its own volition from letter to letter at incredible speed. No one's hand were touching it. The Formica table trembled beneath the Ouija board as it did so. How many ghosts are there here, he asks. The reply, phantoms fill the skies around you. 
Why did you attack Jeff? I was just looking for like four. (laughs) (laughs) Like, way to dodge the question there. Um, Why did you attack Jeff? The planchette skittered across the board. Because you are the likeness of my killer. Oh. Why are you tormenting Jackie? The entity paused as if to consider. Energy, it said. What kind of energy, Taff asked. Another one-word answer spelled itself out, somewhat slower than the others. Dead. Now, doggedly pursuing their line of questioning, the team leaned, uh, learned rather that they were speaking with the ghost of one Herman Hendrickson, who'd been beaten and drowned in San Pedro Harbor by a fellow sailor named Charles Pearson in 1930. Where's the owl then come in? Wasn't owl all over her room? That was her husband's, her oh, husband's right. name, right? Got it. Subsequent forays into newspaper archives confirmed this, and that Jeff Wheatcraft indeed bore a strong resemblance to Hendrickson's presumed killer. Now, Pearson uh, had an evil reputation which preceded him in his days in the docks back in, in the 20s and 30s. He was suspected of not only Hendrickson's untimely death, but also that of one John Damon, neither of whom found justice in the afterlife. For whatever reason, Pearson seemed to avoid prosecution and just disappeared into history. Jackie felt a kind of kinship to Hendrickson's dilemma after hearing this. This was a spirit, she thought, that condemned to wander in limbo because his murderer had gotten away. With this bond came, to, uh, came, came an understanding of the activity that seemed to dull its edge. She relocated several times. The haunting's intensity faded with each successive move until at last, after Jackie bought a home in Los Angeles, the entity dissipated altogether and left her alone. And yet, the small bungalow on West 11th Street near the San Pedro Harbor, continues to see many tenants opt for greener pastures not long after moving in. Some report strange noises coming from the attic. Others insist that a lingering rancid smell wafts through the house like a bad wind, despite their best efforts to get rid of it. Good story, right? Right. Right? Well, there are a few problems with it. Okay. Firstly, let's talk about the timeline. Mm -hmm. Um... The one I've given here actually reflects um, not so much a narrative as my best efforts to build a narrative from a variety of sources, all of which seem to disagree on a number of key points. Um, Now, among my sources are, uh, for example, um, a well-rounded featurette from a YouTube channel called Bedtime Stories, which I highly recommend. They're they're like animations and artwork and stuff, and the narrator's quite good. Um, Also, the documentary segment from the uh, TV series When Ghosts Attack, which Mm, aired mm -hmm. in the 90s, um, that includes interviews with Taff Wheatcraft and Jackie herself, among others. Also, a slew of online articles, a transcript of A Paranormal Survivor, and the book An Unknown Encounter, a true account of the San Pedro haunting by author Barry Conrad. Now, I'm convinced several incidents typically presented as having occurred in sequence are in fact riffs on just a single occurrence. The old man, for example, one version maintains Jackie saw him first as a floating head and later as a full-bodied apparition sitting on the bottom bunk of her son's bed. In that version, no mention is made of her friend Tina seeing him at the kitchen window. In another account, the apparition first appears to Jackie after she awakens from her recurring nightmare of drowning, and here she isn't awakened by the sound of heavy breathing from Jamie's room, but by the urge to pee, and he appears to her, quote, somewhere in the house, quote, end quote, um, not sitting on her son's bed. That detail seems to have been added later for effect. Um, Much is also made of the ooze on the kitchen wall. Various versions have it dripping from a cabinet, a crack in the ceiling, the attic hatch itself. During an interview for a televised uh, documentary, 
Uh, Jackie discusses the incident, but makes no mention of poking her head in the attic to find the cause, uh, much less of seeing the floating head. This may be due to editing on the television show's part, but seems a glaring omission if that part of the story is true. The ineffectual, if not outright meddlesome priests are only present in one version, likewise the incident involving Al's name being scrolled all over the closet wall. Also, there are so many parallels to the Doris Bythers case, which we discussed in an early episode, uh-huh. that one can't help wonder whether Barry Taff, our old friend, was simply developing a story he'd gotten a fair amount of traction with a decade earlier with the entity, right. but that had since fallen by the wayside. Because this is now, you know, so many years later. Um if he saw a dime from the Entity franchise, I don't know, but would he not want to try his luck again with a similar tale if his first foray into the mainstream proved to be less lucrative than he hoped? Yeah. Now, Jackie Hernandez's saga bears such a strong resemblance to what Doris is said to have endured, right down to their both being young single mothers who'd survived histories of abuse, that we have to consider the possibility that the old man ghost, for example, was simply an addition deemed necessary to distinguish the cases from each other. Right. Uh, he also makes no sense. Hendrickson died young. Why would right. he appear as an old man? Yeah. And an evil one at that. And let's face it, the Ouija board scene plays out a little too much like, well, a scene, and it's a bit convenient that there was no evidence of it. Right. Just nothing worked. But that's not uncommon for cases for, like, equipment to go wrong. Um, it's just... And I could go into the whole history of the Ouija board and how um, it's not so much that it doesn't work, but that it's not necessarily... It, it, some people think, oh, you're getting in touch with spirits or demons or the devil. Other people think, no, you're getting in touch with your own subconscious. Right. Um, which, we'll get into that in a second, too. Um, now, all that said, I, I think it's actually rather unlikely for the story to be a total fabrication. What we have is probably a complicated hodgepodge of... Misremembered facts filtered through several decades worth of pop culture, garnished with a little horror movie chic, and naturally embellished through countless retellings. We have to remember the explosion of home video around this time would have made comparisons to films such as Poltergeist or even The Entity way mm-hmm. too easy, and Tav is surely shrewd enough not to have tried floating a bullshit story in such a horror-savvy milieu as the late 80s, early 90s, right? right. Yeah. Um... As many investigations have noted, poltergeist phenomena is tricky. Whatever's responsible seems to enjoy making it difficult for witnesses to prove their claims. Events play out like cruel pranks, contradictory, unintuitive, at times surreal, all seemingly designed to make the victims look stupid. Often, the activity feels so ridiculous in retrospect that victims are loath to share their experience with anyone. Perhaps the key here is the sense of isolation and powerlessness this creates. If these entities do in fact feed off of negative emotions, that strategy makes sense. But it also makes the Ouija revelation a little too much on the nose for my taste, but... As we've discussed before on the subject, poltergeists come in all shapes, sizes, and dispositions. The word itself is a mere term of convenience under which multiple old-world concepts like sprite, brownie, goblin, fairy, demon, and other noisome spirits were categorized during the medieval era when clerics liked to recast pagan beliefs into Christian molds. Modern parapsychology favors a more humanist explanation. Poltergeist phenomena is thought to stem from latent telekinetic powers stirred awake by stressful circumstances and following a strange, unconscious logic all their own. Like writer-philosopher Colin Wilson, who I've brought up many times and will continue to bring up because I fucking adore him, I'm inclined to believe that the truth lies somewhere between these two poles. Perhaps some latent power in Jackie Hernandez, stirred to life by fraught circumstances, found a perfect context in the San Pedro house and attached or attracted a spiritual parasite, 
which in turn manifested according to the images of her unconscious, part projection, part distinct entity, whose character, such as it was, owed itself to her battered psyche. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like, I mean, it could have been the old man could have been the murderer. It could have been. The thought and then he's attacking the young version of himself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It could be. It could also be that, like, you know, the entity, like, the old man, it just could be something that she created. Yeah. Not not made up. I don't mean, like, she made up, but it just could be the entity of something that she thought was really terrifying. And so that's what whatever the energy in the house used to be like, oh, that okay. scares you. Because I, I think it, it's, I'm not trying to say that, <laughs> that the poltergeist is it. Right, right. <laughs> but it does seem to, just like with the Black Monk of Pontefract, you know, at one point the entity in that story took on the form of the Black Monk, mm-hmm. which was an old story that had been circulating in that town for years, and that wasn't true. Right. There was no Black Monk killed there like he was supposed to have done. It was just a popular story. And it's, it's like the pol- and it's like the poltergeist kind of was like, oh, that's fun. I like that suggestion. Yeah. So it's like poltergeists are, are like doing a constant improv show where they're talking to the audience going, okay, I need an occupation. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> and so it seems to, that's, that's so weird about it. And I, I'm inclined to believe it. I think there, there's a core story there that's probably true. Right. I, I think the Ouija board thing may be a little bit much. Um, doesn't mean it didn't happen, um, but there's a whole, I listened to a podcast, a well, last podcast on the left, mm-hmm. they did one on the history of the Ouija board, oh, cool. um, which is fascinating. And I want to do a little thing on that likewise too. I, I, that's a rabbit hole I could go down to because I don't, I didn't really give much credence to Ouija boards until mm-hmm. like I'd listened to that episode. I'm like, okay, all right. Well, if no less August a person than, than Alistair fucking Crowley were like, oh no, this shit can work. Yeah. You know, it I can think be anything can work if you give it. Well, yeah. And that was yeah. the thing. And, um, even the name, uh, Ouija or Ouija, uh, it's like, it's a made up word. It's not, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It's just, um, it's thought to be the French word and the German word for yes, just put together. So yeah. it's we and ya. Oh. So, ya. Which is not how you pronounce it. This kind of stuff, but so it's just weird because it's you know the whole thing is, um, you know, yes, no questions, and then spelling it out. But a lot of people think that it just kind of puts you in touch with your unconscious. And if that right. theory of poltergeist hauntings is true, that it's really just your own unconscious manifesting in the physical world in some weird way, it's kind of brought out by stressful circumstances or puberty is often the case. Um, you know, then it just seems like whatever entities arise out of that aren't necessarily the source. Like, you know, the true form of these things, but just one of the manifestations that, that they take on yeah. as a re- as a reflection of our own minds. Right. Which yeah. is still fucking I mean, crazy to think about. But I don't yeah, know. all of it. But that's the thing. Like, the story itself has been retold so many times to suit so many different interpretations that now what we're left with is like, I don't know how much of that is true. Like, mm-hmm. I'm convinced, like, the bare bones of it is true. I think yeah. she moved in and shit moved around and, and the crashing and the, a lot of it rings true. I think the blood oozing down sounds a little too much like the Amityville horror for me. Yeah. Um, But who knows? I mean, because right. that's rare. Like, the fluids and stuff Could being involved. bees in the walls. Well, they would have presumably found evidence for... But, I mean, right. they didn't, you know, according to Taff, and Taff is on interview, having said that, like, he found the substance and took it in for testing and... uh it was and it was plasma. Yeah. So I don't know. It could have been too that maybe this this other guy that had been killed haunted that bungalow, mm-hmm. and then when she moved, there was the old guy. Yeah. And it's just been mixed up. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? It's really fascinating. But it just goes to show you how fucking weird and hard to pin down it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, how they can change. It's true. Because, it's not true. <laughs> you know, there's so many, I think, too, when you tell these stories a lot or you experience mm-hmm. things a lot, it's that message that, you know, we've seen so many times is that, you know, it's just, it was just footsteps. All I heard was footsteps. All I, uh, I just, there were doors that were knocked on, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But if you've never had anything happen to you mm-hmm. and someone, and you hear someone knock on a door inside a room that is empty in your house, that shit's scary. But yes. If you hear somebody walking around, around you, that shit's scary. Uh-huh. So I think people lose sight when they're involved in a bunch of stuff of what is really genuinely scary. And that even though. It's not blood oozing from a wall. Yeah. It's just footsteps. They're still unexplained footsteps. They're still coming from something. And I think that comes from, like, we, we've been raised on television and movies. Mm-hmm. And so if it doesn't work, if it's not visually spectacular, right. it's we don't it's see not it as scary. Because it's not scary on television. Because right. we're just passive observers. But if yeah. you're in the thick of it, fuck. I mean, like, I'm not saying blood-spattered walls aren't terrifying. You're just less likely to encounter them. But yeah, knock on the wall is really fucking scary if mm-hmm. you're home by yourself. Yeah. Not so much scary watching it happen to someone else in a movie. Right. Um, so we tend to retell story. We tend to, I think, almost unconsciously decorate them to make them good stories. Because right. they were good stories, uh, yeah. you know, to the person they happened to. Because they were like, yeah, it scared the shit out of me. Right. But just, it's so... It's interesting. I want to. I'd like to go back and look at that case and be like, how many, of, like, of these little details could I find in horror movies from the nineties and eighties and nineties yeah, that right. maybe retellers like got either mixed up because right. like the headless ghost, too. you know, that happens too. It's just it's an interesting right. case worthy of study. Or it's also possible, like, if poltergeists do take suggestions, <laughs> as they <laughs> seem to, it could be. Because they're very, everyone agrees that whatever they are, they 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 seem to have a really demented sense of humor. They delight yeah. in in doing just weird shit. Uh, what makes that, you wonder, too? Like if the priests were like not dismissive of her and not, oh, this is because you watch horror movies. Well, they may have been saying, no, this is because they're doing this because you watch horror movies because of the movies you've watched. Yeah, they're taking that. It's getting ideas. <laughs> yeah, and not. You're bad for watching horror movies, or you're yeah. bad because you yeah. have a skeleton. It's just this is what these things resemble around your house. Not that they're bad, but if you eliminate some of those things, you may not be having the same experience because you won't be feeding it with this, un, you know, this fear. Mm-hmm. Instead of the priest being like these horrible guys or whatever. Not that I'm saying, um, yeah, know, and, and the priest so may not even have ways. existed. You know, That's they true. might they they seem kind of they seem like a later addition that was like, oh, that yeah. that belongs in a horror movie. Like, yeah, she goes to the priest and they do nothing. They do nothing. Yeah, because uh, that's kind of what happens in The Exorcist, you know, before yeah. before Father Karras comes on board, the priests are like, "Well, we don't really do things," yeah, and he doesn't really believe her. So it's just, it's really interesting to see how the story plays out. It's not to say that it's not a true story, but it's just where do you right. draw with poltergeist? They're just so fucking weird. They're just poltergeist really cases are. are so goddamn weird that it's impossible. They're impossible mm-hmm. to pin down. Yeah, and they seemed almost designed to be that way, which is what makes that's them great. so compelling yeah. to me. That's why I've done like what five of them. A now? lot of them, yeah. A lot of them on it, but that's awesome, though. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Michael. I'd never heard of that at all. Yeah, never. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed. It. I did, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Yes. Um, you can go to our website, <laughs> oh, which is coolintentions.com. <laughs> it's a it's a mnemonic device. It's yeah. 
And uh, yeah, goalintentions.com. Mm-hmm. There's the podcast is there. Of course, the podcast is also on iTunes. Right. It's on um, all of your podcasting sites, pretty much. Yeah. We've even, it, you can watch it on YouTube. Shit, That's we true. got that going on now. That's true. Uh, we've got shirts for sale we do on the website as well mm-hmm. i keep thinking everybody's got to know this but then we get messages every week like where can i get a shirt it's like we say it at the end quit skipping so the end. Yeah. Um, so, so go to com for that get also, your t-shirts get mm-hmm, your podcast mm-hmm. so also and, where you can submit yes your own personal story for consideration to be read uh, as a cold open on one of the regular episodes or to just be discussed and read uh, in and an episode of Rusticles. Yeah, that's and right. And the submissions have been really, really good. Oh my god, guys. so we're having so much fun with yeah. them. So, and we love people that give us updates of stories they've said before. So if you have updates, send them Send more. them to us. And now it's time for the quote. Yes! Alright. Great men are not born great. They grow great. I don't know. So, Wait, give me a hint. He's, uh... Um, I don't. <laughs> Is there no way to get look ahead without giving away? Every Italian guy ever. Every Italian guy ever would watch this movie. Is it from The Godfather? Yes. Oh, I just totally guessed because I know it was a really good hint. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Godfather. Oh, all right. Yeah. Have you I, ever seen The Godfather? Oh, several times, okay. but I just don't remember that. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a long movie. Great men are not born great; they grow great. Which probably means go gun. kill this person. Take the canoe. Not really. Take the canoe. <laughs> That's a great line. Yes, That's it is. That's a great line. Yes, this it is. This one was a little. This the day of my daughter's wedding. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you guys. Thanks, guys. And oh, remember, it's, it's okay, okay to sleep, sleep with, with the lights, lights on. on.